Well, it's good to be with you guys on this Lord's Day to step into another book of the Bible. I am thankful for you that you are a church that loves the Bible. Amen? Amen. You love the Bible because you first and foremost love Jesus. Amen? Amen. And so are you guys ready to do some work today? The two of you that said yes, I'm glad you're here. The rest of you, you're going to get tired really fast. If you missed last week, we looked at the vision of our church and what we're aiming at for this year ahead. I would highly recommend if you missed that, that you go back and listen to that online if you weren't able to join us. But this morning, we're going to be stepping into the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. And I know you're shocked, but we're going to cover a whole verse today. (laughs) We will speed up after that. But it makes me wonder, as we step into this genre of gospel, what is the definition of the word gospel? It's one of the questions that we ask as elders to affirm that a person is a follower of Jesus Christ, is what is the gospel? And praise the Lord that many of you in this church, most of you in this church, have rightly pulled from your knowledge of Scripture, and you have stated that the gospel is Jesus Christ, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, the pouring out of his spirit. And this is good news. It saves us from our sinful rebellion for which we deserve eternal death. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. And at the same time, we are about to step into a long journey within the gospel of Mark. So shouldn't we ask, before we continue on, thinking that we've got this down and maybe we don't need to read it, shouldn't we ask what the definition of the word gospel is? And the reality is that when that question is asked, you may get many different answers from different places. Even within the church, you might hear answers ranging from, ranging from Jesus forgave my sin to Jesus died for me to Jesus came to rescue us. Are all these true? Absolutely. But it's required of us that we are assured when we answer the question, what is the gospel to a lost and dying world? And because if we're not sure, we will wobble in what the good news actually is, and we will possibly even fall to those that might proclaim a different gospel. Do you ever notice how there are false gospels all around us competing for the attention of the lost souls we are sent to? I was driving the other day, and a song I had heard a million times came on the radio, and it made me think of what we're talking about today. How many of you have ever heard the song Free Fallen by Tom Petty? Anybody? Yeah. Here's the opening line. She's a good girl, loves her mama, loves Jesus, and America too. Ah, gospel music! Awesome! Now, what does this have to do with the gospel? The answer is absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And that is the point. We live in a country where the prosperity gospel and the nationalist gospel undergird the very foundations of our worldview. Just because we know or believe in Jesus, and by believe I mean have a cognitive assent to say that Jesus was real, we think we know the gospel. But the founding principles of the pursuit of happiness, manifest destiny, individualism, the American dream, they create a cloudy mix of quote-unquote good news that quickly defines our idea of gospel if we let it. It's what I call the God bless America Christian. If we're not careful, our nationalist Judeo-Christian morality can blind us to the truth of what the Bible is actually proclaiming the gospel to be. And I believe that through our study of the gospel according to Mark, we're going to be able to definitively state what the gospel is. And because we will know the gospel stronger than ever before, I pray that we will be a church that takes our call to proclaim the gospel more seriously than ever before. So today, I want to begin that journey by giving you an introduction to the gospel according to Mark. Through this gospel... I want to strengthen what many of you already know about the gospel in the life, substitutionary death, and resurrection of Jesus. And at the same time, I hope that the fullness of that truth comes to life for you in new and powerful ways. So let's begin by gaining some context. The first thing we're going to look at today is we're going to define the word gospel in the Hebrew context. And by doing so, we're going to start to look at the what of the gospel of Mark. The what? What is it trying to tell us? So to do so, let's begin with our very first verse in Mark, our text for today. Look in your Bibles there. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay? 
Now, I won't do this through the whole book of Mark, but here it is in the Greek. Arche, tau, euangelio, Jesu, Christu, weu, theu. Mark 1, 1. Now, you might be thinking, Hans, that's not what's in my Bible. But I show this to you because I want us to pause this morning. Rather than glossing over something because we think we understand what it means, I want us to realize that with every ancient writing, there is a background to it. This was originally written in Greek, the book of Mark was. Now, you do not, hear me, you do not need to know the original languages to understand the Bible. Can I get an amen? Okay. Some of us nerds go to seminary to do so, but the rest of you don't need to. But to see it in Greek makes our minds slow down and ask the question, I wonder what it meant to the people reading the gospel for the first time. Now, why is this important? Well, to understand the original author's original intent, we need to read in context. Context of the grammar, the language, and of the rest of the Bible. But we also need to read it in the social context of the day in which it was used. Otherwise, we will wrongly enforce our view of what it means in 2019 onto the original authors and possibly miss the meaning. Let me illustrate with an example. I want you to think of Facebook. Now, I know many of you must be thinking this is the most sacrilegious definition of the gospel you've ever heard because I've already referenced Tom Petty and Facebook, but just bear with me, okay? In 2019, we all obviously know Facebook as a social media giant that is known probably the world over. We use it for uploading photos, for making our opinions known, thinking that everybody wants to hear our opinions, and various other sundry things. But let's say you happen to come across a paper written by a Harvard College student in 2002. That was only 17 years ago. But in that paper, they refer to the Facebook. And at that point in time, it was a hard copy paper, student directory with names and faces and basic information of students. That was it. To the person in 2002, it meant one thing when you said Facebook. In 2019, it means another. We should not place our view of what it means onto what the original author of that writing meant. It changed after it received worldwide recognition. Does that make sense? Now, why is this important to understand is because the words used in both Hebrew and in Greek at the time of the writing of the Bible had their own background to them prior to and surrounding the event of Jesus. So let's pause for just a minute and let our friends from the Bible Project tell us a quick bit of what the original language behind the gospel meant. Why don't you look up at the screen? As a kind of summary of Christian belief, connected to phrases like, God loves you, or Jesus died for your sins. But over time, religious words like gospel can lose their power and meaning by becoming too familiar. So let's take a moment to rediscover what this important word, gospel, meant to the people who wrote the Bible. Gospel translates the Old Testament Hebrew verb, biser, and the noun, besorah. The Greek New Testament equivalent is euangelion, which is a compound word. Eu means good, and angelion means announcement. All of these words mean good news, but what kind of news? Well, in Hebrew, beser is what we might call national news or a royal announcement. Like when King David hears a messenger beser that his army was victorious in battle. That means he still rules on his throne over the people of Israel. And after David dies, his throne is passed on to Solomon, his son. And when he was inaugurated as king in Jerusalem, a herald spreads the Besorah, that a new ruler is in charge. But after Solomon's death came a bunch of bad news kings whose corruption led their nation into self-destruction. This is why the prophet Isaiah announced the good news that one day the God of Israel would come as the cosmic king to confront all corrupt and violent kingdoms and restore his rule over all nations. And so, when Jesus of Nazareth hit the public stage, he continued Isaiah's gospel when he went around announcing the euangelion of God's kingdom. Jesus claimed that God was restoring his reign over his people Israel and over all nations, and he was the one bringing it all about. Now, the euangelion about a new king in charge means a new way of life. Jesus said that living in God's kingdom meant following him by putting down the sword and seeking peace through radical forgiveness and generosity, even toward your enemies. His good news required people to make a decision. 
This is why Jesus took his euangelion to Jerusalem to confront the corrupt and violent kingdoms of his day. But he challenged them in a surprising way with the power of God's generous love. As Jesus was being executed by his enemies, he received his crown and was mocked as a fake king. But he displayed true royal authority by forgiving his tormentors. Jesus was the one in charge that day, giving his life for the sins of others. And then, a few days later, everything changed. Jesus rose from the dead as the true king, whose love is stronger than death. He appeared to hundreds of his followers and told them to spread the euangelion, that all authority in heaven and earth now belongs to him. And they did share this good news all over the ancient world. They did it by writing the four accounts of Jesus' life that are the gospel. That is, they tell the story of how Jesus brought God's kingdom, how he lived for others and died for their sins, and then was raised from the dead. Jesus' followers also shared the good news by simply talking about it. This is why Peter and Paul, or Priscilla and Aquila, traveled all around sharing the royal announcement. While it might look like the rulers of our world are in charge and can do whatever they want, the good news is that the crucified and risen Jesus is the true Lord of the world, the real king of all creation. And in Jesus' kingdom, things are different. It's where the real leaders are the servants, because the last are first, and the first go to the back of the line. It's where the hungry are fed and the homeless are welcome, because love is the most powerful reality of God's kingdom. And this good news is not easy to believe. It actually sounds kind of crazy when you first hear it, but something happens when people tell the story of Jesus and start living like he really is the king of the world. That's when this gospel becomes the best news that you've ever heard. For the Jews that were alive in Jesus' day, they knew the idea of the gospel. It was the good news that a king was enthroned that would save them, that would bring them salvation from their enemies. Remember the scripture that Courtney read from Psalm 96 earlier. It had this phrase in verse 2 that's up here on the screen. It said, tell of his salvation from day to day. In the Hebrew, this word there of tell, the good news, is basar, which was a royal announcement. You can see this within the context because just eight verses later in Psalm 96.10, it says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. It's a statement of enthronement. It was a royal announcement. Not only does it speak of enthronement, but rather victorious enthronement. Closely linked to this idea of enthronement is the idea of proclaiming that this enthroned king has defeated an enemy. For example, look here at 1 Samuel 31, 8 through 9. It says, The next day when the Philistines came to, the, uh, to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the gospel to the house of their idols and to the people. The good news, the gospel that they had won. Now, they are an enemy of Yahweh, but they had good news. And the, the background, the context was for their good news was that the king of their enemy had died and they had risen victorious. This is the context for the Hebrew word gospel. When that word basar is translated from Hebrew to Greek in what is called the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it's translated as this word euangelizomai, which is the same word as it talked about in that video. It's the same word that's in the root word of euangeliu, or the gospel of Mark 1. Look at one of the places noted in the Bible Project video. Would you guys turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 1 in your Bible? Go ahead and turn there with me. 1 Kings chapter 1. And take a look at verse 5. A little background here. King David was old and dying, so his throne was going to be up for grabs. Let's take a look at it here. It says, verse 5, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. So King David was old, he was dying, his throne was up for grabs, and his son Adonijah at this point was next in line for the throne. 
So what does he do? He assumes that he is going to be king. He believes it will be his, and he steps out a bit prematurely. Because remember, the authority of, of the time, David, was the one that got to declare the next king. It didn't automatically go to him. Well, fast forward to 1 Kings 32 with me. King David decides something else. It says in verse 32, King David said, Call to me Tzadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And, the, and let Zadok, the priest, and Nathan, the prophet there, anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place, and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, Answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. David sets up Solomon as king here. Now, guys, is this good news for Adonijah? No, it's actually bad news. See, this is one of the misunderstandings of the gospel. If you do not follow the enthroned king, then the message is actually bad news for you. In fact, in fact, it's destructive. It's only good news if you submit to the enthroned king. And so, what happens here? Well, look down a little bit further to verse 41. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. So they were having a big party. Adonijah was celebrating. All the friends were around him. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, What does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. And Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a man worthy, and bring the gospel, the good news. The good news of what? Well, that I'm going to be king. Adonijah wanted to hear the good news that he was going to be king, the gospel. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites. And they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet, have anointed him king at Gihon. And they have gone up from there rejoicing, so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our lord, King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours, and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed, and the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then, awkward silence, all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. In verse 42, the word proclaim with the context of good news is rendered in the Greek, that word euangelion the gospel. This is the Hebrew background, thrones, kings, kingdoms, victory. The idea that the gospel was a royal proclamation about a king and how he accomplished his victory over his enemies. And perhaps this will give us context to the idea that Jesus is going to proclaim back in the gospel according to Mark. Why don't you go back there with me and look at chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, God has a wonderful purpose and plan for your life, and he died for the specific purpose to save you so you can go to heaven when you die. That's not in any of your translations? No. Verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, you guys look really quickly with me. Are you contained anywhere in that? No, you're not the center of the gospel. The king in his kingdom is the center of the gospel. But what about the Greek background of this word? We've looked heavily here at the Hebrew background. Let's keep looking at this word gospel as we look at the setting of the book of Mark to see a little bit more about it. And in so doing, we're going to see the author, the audience, and the motivation behind the gospel. So let's define the word gospel in the Greek context. The who, the where, the when, and the why of Mark. In the Greek, the word is euangelion. Euangelion. 
It is the word from which we get the English word evangelism. Everybody say evangelism. To evangelize is to proclaim the euangelion, to proclaim the gospel. This gospel we have before us is historically entitled the gospel according to Mark. This wasn't just any author named Mark. In those days, an author needed strong credentials of having known Jesus to be seen as an authority. They wouldn't just let anybody write a book that would then be moved around the churches. But according to church history, this man that wrote this this gospel was a man named John Mark. He was the man spoken of as an assistant, assistant to Barnabas and Paul in Acts. And the book of Acts also tells us in chapter 12, excuse me, that he was the son of Mary, not the mother of Jesus, but the Mary who owned the house that held the upper room in which they had the Last Supper. But most importantly of all, the tradition in the church states that Mark was a disciple of the apostle Peter. And he recorded and arranged Peter's memories into the gospel we have before us. Now, this is interesting because the early church father, Irenaeus, stated that this occurred and was written down just before the deaths of Peter and Paul in Rome at the hands of Caesar Nero. This would put it, the gospel, being written in the late 60s AD, just a few years before the temple was torn down by Titus and the Roman soldiers in 70 AD. Now, this information is really fascinating because it gives us an idea where we can gain some possible reasons behind why it was written. And as uh, we step into verse 2 and we look at where this gospel begins in comparison to the other gospels that start with genealogies, for example, or a different part of the story, you'll notice that that section that uh, Patrick read earlier from Acts is Peter proclaiming the gospel. And where does he start when he proclaims the gospel? The same place that Mark starts, the baptism of John, uh, the baptizing of John. And so we start to see that this is really a gospel according to Mark, but in actuality, it's a gospel according to Peter, one of the men extremely close to Jesus. Well, this is fascinating first uh, because for a long time in the historical church, The gospel accepted as the first gospel, the primary, was that of Matthew. But a lot of scholarship over the last century has uncovered the likely idea that Mark was actually the first. We don't know this for sure, but people are trending towards this way. Most likely, Mark was used as a major source for both Matthew and Luke. The theory goes that those two gospels used Mark and one to two other sources to write them. But Mark was some of the uh, main and primary source material. If this is the case, reading the book of Mark will give us great clarity on the earliest understandings of the works and teachings of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, as it was the first gospel. And this is possibly one of the main reasons that it was written. It was the first written gospel account. Second, The date of the writing paints a vivid picture of the background for this word gospel. At this point in time, Roman citizens would have known one primary usage of the word euangelion. It was used in connection with the religious cult in which the emperor of Rome, the Caesar, was viewed as the incarnate or bodily formed agent of the Roman gods on earth. It was used in connection with his birthday, his ascension to power, and even on occasion, a royal visit by the emperor. They would say, I have the gospel, Caesar is coming to visit. In worship, the people of the Roman Empire would call him God or the Son of God. Now Mark, speaking the good news of the one true God, Yahweh, speaks the gospel of Mark as a polemic, as an argument against the cult of Rome. He speaks the good news of the life of the true Lord, Jesus, the Christ, the Christos, the Son of God. That Jesus is the true authority over all kingdoms and realms. Third, the church tradition that puts the date of writing in the late 60s explains something very interesting. You see, other than the one line in verses 14 and 15, the statement about the gospel of the kingdom that we just looked at, Mark doesn't seem to give a definitive answer to the question, what is the gospel? 
It's as if he is relying upon the audience to already know what that gospel is. So we need to understand that, most likely, the gospel had already been circulating. The story of Jesus, the information about his ministry, his death, his, his life, his death, his resurrection, it was already going around by word of mouth in the early church, by oral st- storytelling. And for the prior 10 to 15 years, before Mark was written, there was not a gospel in written form. The apostle Paul had been writing and circulating his letters for 15 years before any of these written gospels were actually put on paper. Now, why that's interesting is it could be that Mark was written, it could be that Mark was written to give background to those letters that were themselves carrying the gospel message. You'd hear from Paul as his letters would circulate, and then you'd ask, well, what's the story? Give us more information. And now we have Mark. And this is important because every once in a while, you may hear in Christian circles, even today in 2019, the absolutely ludicrous question about whether or not Jesus and Paul were speaking different gospels. One of kingdom reign, that's what Jesus said, and one of personal salvation, that's what Paul was about. No, that's absolutely ludicrous. Because as you are already seeing, you cannot separate the two. And most likely, Mark was written in part to give the background gospel the story to what Paul was already teaching throughout the known Roman Empire. And we will see this as we go through. You cannot have Jesus as Savior if he is not also your king. It's impossible. Fourth, There's the general knowledge of the timing of the writing of the gospel, and what it does for us is it cements for us who the audience was. And Mark speaks in very common Greek language, not using fancy terms as the historian Luke does in his gospel. And Mark even explains Hebrew traditions and rituals as if the audience were Gentile. And so most agree that this was written to Gentile believers in the Roman Empire. Now, these believers were undergoing their first major martyrdom at the hands of Emperor Nero. A large fire had occurred in 64 AD in Rome, and Nero used the Christians as scapegoats, which led to a horrific persecution and martyrdom at the hands of the government, not to mention at the hands of the average Roman citizen. You see, to stand up in that culture and to proclaim that the head of the government was not actually in power. The true Christians got told off by the people that backed Caesar. We often confuse positions of power as if they're one and the same, but to make the declaration that Jesus is Lord over all and that all authority is his, that doesn't make many friends. And so we see that Mark was most likely written as an encouragement to persecuted Christians especially in an evil government that did not display God's righteousness and justice. It was written to people under harsh oppression, persecution, and martyrdom. Now, all these items help us view the backdrop against which the gospel was written. We start to understand now what the word gospel meant to the Hebrew Christian, to the Gentile, Greek, or Roman Christian. But we need not leave verse 1 yet. We're not done yet. It has more for us because it gives us a little bit of a preview. And the first thing that it shows us is that the gospel of Mark will help us see who Jesus is. You can write that down. The gospel of Mark will help us see who Jesus is. You might think, duh, Hans, it's a gospel about Jesus. Hopefully it would accomplish this. But oftentimes I think we read the gospels in order to find out about ourselves first and foremost. How does it save me? What does it mean for my life? and God's plan for me. But the primary point of the Gospel of Mark is that the Gospel of Mark will help us see who Jesus is. In this Gospel, we will be introduced to Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Christ and Messiah, as the King and as the Savior. In the late 60s AD, the church was beginning to multiply. And Peter was about to be killed. His memories would be lost with him. 
The church was dealing with new false theologies and heretical views of who Jesus was. It was getting big enough that organization needed to occur and elders needed to be put in place, as Paul talks about to Titus in his letter to him. Writing down the gospel account would give a final record of truth of what occurred in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. I'm about to leave for a little bit of time. You're in good hands with the rest of the elders. And I'm stepping off for some vacation, and I realized all the things that were in my head that I hadn't told anybody. Now, I'm getting on a plane, and hopefully, Lord willing, it lands where it's supposed to. But if it didn't, and my brain went down with me, there would be a lot of things that people wouldn't know. Things as small as how to run the ProPresenter application in the back that does visuals. So this week, I have been writing like crazy, overloading people with emails, texts, and documentation to let them know, hey, this is what's in my head. Peter likely was doing the same thing. I need somebody to write down the truth of who Jesus was before I die. And so the writer of Mark was more concerned with telling us who Jesus was, more so than what he did and when he did it. And so it doesn't fit our sterile and clean views of history telling. We today, we want police reports that tell us line item by line item how things occurred. But the author here isn't interested in that. What he's interested in is giving us a strong theology of who Jesus is. As an example, let's look at two items right here in Mark 1.1. Look at the first two words there. In the Greek, it's one. In the English, it's two. The beginning, or arche, the beginning. Now, this could be just a chronological marker, but many scholars disagree with that. What they see in this phrase is a hyperlink that points the reader back to the full narrative of Scripture. Now, think for a second here. Pause for a moment and and think with me. Question and answer time. Can you think of another part of the Bible that starts with beginning, such as in the beginning? Genesis 1.1, okay? In the beginning. The gospel author of John, uh, John, uses the same tool. In the beginning was the Word. In this same phrase, the writer of Mark brings the reader back to the story of God, the creator and provider. It doesn't start partway in, it points you all the way back. And it gives you the understanding that mankind was created to dwell in relationship with that creator and provider, to be bearers of the image of God, working together to propagate a species that would worship Yahweh and subdue the world in his name and reign. But the narrative of Scripture tells us that mankind joined the rebellion led by spiritual beings that were against the reign of Yahweh. And we raised up leaders and kings and political leaders, evil to the core, still do, in their lust and thirst for power over others. Leaders leading the people away from the truth of Yahweh. And so, through the prophets, God proclaimed the good news that he would send an agent that would be his redeemer to save the world from these broken kingdoms. One of the most well-known prophets was one named Isaiah, quoted here in Mark 1-2. Isaiah is known for proclaiming the imminent salvation which God is going to work for his people. Look, for example, at the screen with me at Isaiah 52-7. This is a quote uh, that Paul later uses, but it says this, "'How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the gospel, good news.'" who publishes peace, who brings the gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The gospel presented here matches Isaiah's message of, as one commentator put it, the inbreaking of God's final saving act to peace, for peace, and release from oppression. Another item that we see in Mark 1.1 is the statement at the end, Son of God. Now, some early manuscripts do not have this. So there's debate about whether it was dropped from the earliest manuscripts or whether it was added in later by well-meaning scribes to round out what was already known about Jesus through other sources. But remember what we just said about the gospel being partially an argument against the cultic religion of the emperor and the worship of the emperor in Rome. The Romans gave this title, Son of God, to their emperors. Nero, Son of God. Augustus, Son of God. There's actually an inscription in the ruins of Pergamum that identifies Caesar Augustus as Emperor Caesar, Son of God, God Augustus. Mark could be using this term, among others in the gospel, to speak of true lordship as a way of bringing hope to the true people of God that while a leader 
so in league with the earthly kingdom of darkness may be in power, here it would be Nero, there is one greater than he that is truly seated on the throne. The Gospel of Mark will not only focus on the deity of Jesus, but it will also take that and roll it into the full humanity of Jesus, the human nature of Jesus. And this is why, as I said last week, uh, that the book of Mark will help us understand a lot about ourselves and help us grow in what is uh, called emotional health. Mark will point out, more so than the other Gospels do, the humanity of Jesus by calling attention to his emotions, things like pity, anger, grief, frustration. These will all be attributed to Jesus in his humanity because Jesus was one acquainted with our emotions and our sorrows. And this combination of the deity and humanity in Christ will be emphasized by Mark in the story of his sacrificial death. The climax of God's story of redemption that started in Genesis goes all the way to Revelation, but is presented beautifully here in Mark, that climax, as he devotes a full third of his narrative to the last week of Jesus' life and his sacrificial death. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says these famous words. And he said to them, This, one too many, For even the Son of, God, uh, Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It speaks of his sacrificial, atoning death, where he was substituted in our place. He took our place in death so that we could be raised with him. And in this death, we will see Jesus as the perfecter of the covenant between God and his people. This is Mark 14, 24. Jesus said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. In this careful writing, Mark will show us the perfect union between the Exodus God and the ultimate prophet, fulfilling a second and ultimate exodus from the kingdom of darkness. In the words of one commentator, Jesus' death creates a new people of God who will inherit the kingdom of God. And thus, Mark was written to help its readers understand who Jesus is. And from there, from that primary understanding, then we can move into the place where we begin to understand ourselves. And the Gospel of Mark will help us understand our identity as disciples. The Gospel of Mark will help us understand our identity as disciples. I'm finding the more counseling work I do over the years and the more pastoral care work I do, that one of the most crucial things I do in sitting with people is I work through what they believe about themselves and what's true about themselves. They work through their identity. Dear brothers and sisters, if I can give you one thing to take away from today, if all of this Greek and Hebrew flies over your head and you think, I don't, didn't get anything from today, take this one thing. You have an identity, and that identity is not what you think it is. Because the ideas and the thoughts from your background and from your history and from all the failures that you and I have that define us, that is not your identity. Your identity is first and foremost a disciple of Jesus Christ. When you get asked, who are you, that should be the first thing on your lips. I'm not a pastor. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm a son of the Most High King. You are sons and daughters of the Most High King, and you are disciples of Jesus Christ, if he is your King and Savior. That's your identity. Just as we found in reading through Deuteronomy and learning who we worship, we should also be learning who we are and what our identity is in Christ. The gospel, according to Mark, was written in a way that was most likely intended to be read aloud. Some estimates place the literacy rate of the Roman Empire at about 10% at the time of the writing of Mark. And so in the churches, Mark would have been read most likely in total or in large chunks. Very different than how we are doing it here today. Mark uses literary tools as it was read aloud, like sandwiching things together, for example, where three stories act as a sandwich, two on the end or similar and one in the middle to provide the main point. And we'll show that as we go through. It was given that way to allow the reader time and repetition to gain the idea, giving them time to mentally catch up and hear the main point. And some of you are thinking, Hans, you should try that sometimes. Well, we will see that repetition over and over again in Mark is very good. The purpose behind this was that Mark wanted the hearers to fully understand who Christ was and to be encouraged in the midst of their current situation. 
Remember that the original hearers were most likely in the midst of the worst martyrdom and persecution to date. You think that HR getting called for you proselytizing is bad? In this time, brothers and sisters were being placed naked in gladiatorial stadiums as they were skewered and eaten alive by wild animals to the delight of everyone around them. They were being dipped in boiling oil and hung from lampposts lit on fire to be candles illuminating the streets at night. In hearing this gospel, the hearers would hear good news. Not that they would have their best life. Not that life would be comfortable. Not that life would be easy. They would hear good news that in spite of what was surrounding them, God was still on the throne, active in bringing his kingdom to bear through the subversive means of a community founded on love, sacrifice, and justice. A kingdom that will one day resurrect and at that point on can never be broken. Hearers would have listened to John the baptizer losing his life as a preview of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. They would have spent one-third of the gospel hearing of Jesus' horrific torture and death. They would have seen an incarnate God going through all that they were enduring. And in so doing, they would be given their own identity. The disciples are not men and women of this world or the systems within it. Disciples are those that follow Jesus and are willing to endure similar suffering as we lay down our lives for others. It was this idea that would provide amazing context to some of Jesus' words. Words like what he says in Mark 8.34. And calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Dear brothers and sisters, this is not speaking of the 10 minutes you lose for morning, of sleep you lose for morning devotions. It is not missing out on Sunday morning where you could be hiking so you have to come to church. This is talking about laying down everything in your life, even to the point of death, if it is asked. It's a different gospel than what we think it is in the United States. Reading through the gospel according to Mark <clears throat> will quickly destroy any idea you and I might have that to be a disciple is to have things go our way. That to be a disciple is to have our best life now. Or to reap healing and wealth rather than sacrifice, death, and persecution. The true gospel will quickly discern between a self-centered gospel and a Christ-centered gospel. It will do this simply by asking us a question. This is my last Point that you can write down. The Gospel of Mark will force us to answer Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? For some of you, you may not know it, but you answer that question with the way you live life, that Jesus is your genie in a lamp to provide you with whatever you want. For some of you, Jesus is power, so that you can have power over others. For some of you, Jesus is a political statement, that he agrees with your political ideology and therefore you can post whatever you want on Facebook, demeaning and degrading people. Who is Jesus to you? The Gospel of Mark is largely broken up into two main sections. First, his ministry and works in the first eight chapters, and then his journey to Jerusalem, concluding in his passion and death. Sandwiched between those two sections in a small story, as if a hinge, is where Jesus asks Peter the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed king. In this one sentence, Peter encapsulates all that this gospel is trying to proclaim. That Jesus is the Messiah, the agent of God, the sacrifice that brings redemption, the king who brings restoration. I think that as we read through this gospel, many of us, if not most of us, will be presented with this question afresh. Who do you say that Jesus is? In this gospel, you and I will be lovingly confronted with the truth of Jesus and the truth that the time 
is fulfilled. It's not coming in a future rapture. It's not coming when we die. The time is fulfilled now, and his kingdom is at hand. The question will be, what will we do with it? Will we lay down our lives? Will we repent and believe as his gospel requires? Or will we go on our merry way, living life unaffected, thinking that we will be ushered into a kingdom in eternity in which we played no part while on this earth? Mark's gospel has been called a gospel of action because Jesus is constantly pictured as on the move. Words like immediately and again lead the reader to have this high-pitched pace as they read through it. And we will be presented with the question of what action we will take. As we'll see at the end of the book of Mark, the large section there at the end, you might even see it in your footnotes, is actually added far after the original manuscripts. The original manuscript of the gospel leaves it with the women running from the tomb in fear, as if a cliffhanger, and the original author intended it that way, to ask the question, now you know the gospel, what are you going to do? He doesn't put a nice bow on it. He leaves it for you and I to ask, what action will we take? You see, in Mark 1.1, in this one small verse and prologue of the gospel of Mark, we are reminded of the context behind the word gospel. It was during the time of Mark's writing, in the midst of all of these colliding meanings of the word gospel, that one true gospel emerged. Prior to this new literary genre known as gospel, created by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the word had relative meanings. But from the point of the gospel according to Mark onward, the gospel meant one thing and one thing alone. It became linked forever and always with the name Jesus of Nazareth. Dear brothers and sisters, it is true that we need to have a quick, repeatable, memorizable statement of the gospel to give if asked. We need that. At the same time, I hope that the gospel of Mark will open our eyes to the fact that a quick gospel statement, while true, is really the tip of the massive iceberg that is the good news of God. For you see, it does center on Jesus' death and resurrection as a means to save you and I from our sin, yes. And it has to do with so much more. Look again at Mark 1, 14 through 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 14 says, this was the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. You see, the gospel is salvation for you and for me, yes. But if that is the focus of our gospel understanding and we stop there, then who is at the center of it? It's you and me. Jesus rightly proclaims that what is at the center of the gospel is not you or me, but himself. He is the king, and his kingdom is what we proclaim. The gospel of God speaks of the full narrative of Scripture that is the story of how God is working to bring his kingdom to bear. The gospel states that we were created as image bearers of God, innately valuable in that we bore his image in relationship, but it states further the fact that mankind rebelled and disobeyed God and in so doing sinned and broke the intimate bond between the creator and his creation. The gospel speaks of the entire Old Testament narrative that shows his sovereign hand moving in spite of our sin to create a people from which he could proclaim his character and out of which he could produce a redeemer. The gospel speaks of the life, teachings, and wondrous deeds of that redeemer, a redeemer who was a man and God named Jesus of Nazareth that proclaimed and exampled the kingdom reign of righteousness and justice. The gospel speaks of the climactic event of Jesus' sacrificial death as a substitution and ransom for many to purchase you and I back from the very sin to which we were enslaved. The gospel speaks of his resurrection to new life that proves he is the victorious king that no earthly authority compares to him. And this is a fulfillment of the prophetic promise. The gospel speaks that we can put our hope in no one else but Jesus Christ, 
that no one will reform our nation, our government, or the world except Jesus Christ. The gospel speaks of God's direct intervention into history to save you and I from the kingdom of darkness of which we are a part and welcome us into his own by pouring out his spirit in us, the church. And the gospel challenges any and all allegiances, personal, familial, political, anything other than allegiance to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We'll talk about throughout the gospel of Mark that there is the gospel, capital T, capital G, which is summarized perfectly in 1 Corinthians 15, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. But then there is the larger iceberg underneath the water of the fullness of the gospel, which is the narrative of the entirety of Scripture. I pray that rather than stopping at the tip of the iceberg, which is in itself true and good, that is the one-sentence gospel, rather than stop at the myopic view of how the gospel is good news for me and getting me to heaven, I pray that you will delve deep with us as a church to see all that is under the surface. I pray that you will see that the gospel is good news for all nations and all creation, and that it is not something we can simply take and put in our back pocket and go on our merry way. It demands that we lay down all that we are in submission to its truth every moment of every day. It demands that we take it to the world around us, first by our lifestyle that shows the king to whom we are submitted, and then by our words, proclaiming his good news all the way to the ends of the earth. As we begin the gospel according to Mark, I want to ask you to do two things. First, I want to ask you to think right now of someone in your life with whom you would like to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. I want you to pray for them as we go through the book of Mark that they might hear the truth of the gospel of the kingdom. Then I want to ask you right now to lift up in silent prayer a request that God might make you experts of knowing and living out the gospel. Pray that you might understand. Pray that hearts would be open. And pray that you would be bold to speak it in those relationships in which the Lord is calling you to be a messenger of the gospel. Let us start the book of Mark with anticip anticipation that we don't learn the gospel just so that we can have it. We learn the gospel so that we can be proclaimers of it to the rest of the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Worship team, you can come on up.